President, we have a national emergency. This is one of the things that we can shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, normally you can't do that. All of a sudden these trees started moving out of the way. They parted for me. And then I came out into this opening, and there where I saw Jesus Christ. Welcome in to End Time News. I am your host, W. Dean Shook, bringing you the news the mainstream media is never going to touch, but we're going to do something a little different today. Racism is so much in the headlines, it's time to tell the truth, and that's exactly what we're going to do here today. First of all, let me say welcome to our listeners on the iHeartRadio Network, our regular broadcast affiliates across this country, our internet connections, which is the Blog Talk Radio Network, and the Spreaker Radio Network. Welcome to everyone. Thank you for allowing me this last week of a little bit of a hiatus. You know, following this stuff every single day can make you a little stir-crazy, so I really needed that break. Thank you for sticking with me. I appreciate all of you. You are what makes this program successful. So before we start this discussion, let me give you a little background about uh, Mr. Obama and his beginnings. You know, Obama taught workshops on the Alinsky theories and methods for years. In 1985, he started working as a community organizer for the Alinsky group called Developing Community Projects. And the whole time, he was building coalitions of black churches in Chicago. And he was criticized for not attending church when he decided to become an instant Christian. He then helped fund the Alinsky Academy. Obama was a paid director of the Woods Fund, which is a nonprofit organization, and it's used to provide startup funding and operating capital for the Midwest Academy, which teaches the Alinsky tactics of community organizing. Obama sat on the Woods Fund board with William Ayers, Bill Ayers, the terrorist, the founder of the Weather Underground, a domestic terrorist organization. Now, I've told you this before, but for those of you who haven't heard it, I'm going to tell you again. Hillary Rodham, as a student at Wellesley in 1969, interviewed Saul Alinsky, wrote her thesis on Alinsky's theories and methods. In the conclusion of her thesis, she wrote, Alinsky is regarded by many as the proponent of a dangerous psychopolitical philosophy. As such, he has been feared, just as Eugene Debs or Walt Whitman or Martin Luther King has been feared, because each embraced the most radical of political faiths, democracy. 
Alinsky offered Hillary a job when she graduated from Wellesley. She decided to attend Yale instead. Uh, let me give you a taste of Saul Alinsky's book, Rules for Radicals, on page 113. From the moment the organizer enters a community, he lives, dreams, eats and breathes and sleeps only one thing, and that is to build the mass power base of what he calls his army. Until he has developed the mass power base, he confronts no issues. Let me give you a couple more examples here. Page 59. But to the organizers, compromise is a key and beautiful word. It's always present in the pragmatics of operation. It's making a deal, getting the verbal breather, usually the victory, if you start with nothing. Demand 100%, compromise for 30%, you're 30% ahead. I would argue that every conservative or constitution-minded person to know your enemy, buy and read this book. Your adversaries have memorized it. And make no mistake, the progressive liberals or radicals' goal is to tear down the republic and shred the constitution. The problem is, they have nothing to replace it with. They're only bent on destruction. Now I want you to remember a famous quote from Donald Ayot. A nation can only be disgraced by the failure of its citizenry to take action in the face of tyranny. That is very important quote. I'm going to say it again. A nation can only be disgraced by the failure of its citizenry to take no action in the face of tyranny. The fact is, Obama was taught to destroy the middle class. And Obama is desperate to make people believe that he really cares about the middle class. After five years, his actions speak louder than his words. Some 85% of the middle class say they're worse off today than they were 10 years ago. Now think about this. 25 years ago, you could have one parent in the workforce. The mother could stay home with the kids and they could get by. He's claiming that our economy has recovered, but it takes both parents working just to make ends meet. According to the Wall Street Journal, from the time Obama took office in 2009, the Obama years have been brutal on middle class, especially on their incomes, wiping out thousands in real income for families. The report goes on to say, the last time incomes fell this fast, was during the late 70s under Jimmy Carter. And it's no coincidence the economic policies then and now are very similar, although I imagine that Billy Carter is probably feeling uh, a little down here lately since President Obama has stole his title of modern times' worst president. But the financial loss and the burden that's been imposed by Obama is greater on all workers, including blacks and Hispanics, Asians and whites. Tax hikes in Obama's care's vast array of hidden taxes tear families' budgets even further apart. The question is, why has the middle class been hit so hard by Obama? Well, this is an ideological grudge. Obama had two doggedly radical mentors that helped shape his ideology and his policies. One was a committed, hardcore communist, and the other was a renowned and hardcore socialist. 
neither man stressed American values, but taught the opposite. That America, with its free enterprise, republic-based, God-worshipping system is the enemy of the people, according to Frank Marshall Davis, a reported pedophile, race-monger, strident communist, and he was Obama's family friend. He was recruited by Obama's grandfather to educate young Barry in the ways of the world. It was, however, Obama's educational mentor that stressed that if real power is to be gained, it must be done at the expense of the American people and the economy. Solinsky Tactics The late Harvard professor Saul Alinsky wrote The Key to Be Awakened. Then, take over America, its economy, and its people is to destroy the middle class. Alinsky advocated use of class and race warfare. He believed that wealth redistribution, taken from those who work and give it to those who don't, is the catalyst to bring down the U.S. economy and free market capitalism that Obama seems to hate so much. And after all these years in office, Obama is well on his way to doing just that. Alinsky's Socialist Guidebook is embedded in Obama's record of economic policies that he's visited on all Americans and their family, especially the middle class. Now, I think we need to take note that Alinsky's began his book, Rules for Radicals, with a tribute to, and I quote, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. Alinsky championed and sought to emulate Lucifer, otherwise known as Satan. Alinsky's game plan was to lie, cheat, and steal elections in order to control the American people and bring American commerce to its knees. Alinsky clearly recognized that Lucifer is also the king of deception, and it's upon deception that Alinsky built his political strategy. Deception he taught his followers, is the Trojan horse that gets you inside the gates, where you can then access power and retain it by any means available, no matter what the cost to the people, the government, or the nation. Again, it's on deception that Alinsky built his political strategy. It's Alinsky's strategy to Barack Obama wrote in his political strategy. It's Alinsky's strategy that Barack Obama wrote on a blackboard and could be seen teaching to ACORN members during his days as a Chicago community organizer. Obama's educational mentor, Alinsky, also worked as a Chicago community organizer before him. Now, it's true that Saul Alinsky preferred the teachings of Lenin, who murdered millions, and he preferred those over the teachings of Mao who also murdered millions. Mao advocated obtaining power by the barrel of a gun. Lenin was more subtle by first advocating working the system and obtaining power by the vote, then using the barrel of the gun to keep it. And I'm going to illustrate that here in just a few minutes. Alinsky had no qualms about stealing the vote as a means to reach his result. Now for Saul Alinsky... Deception is the key to everything. Say one thing, do another. Even change the meaning of words. Pretend to be bipartisan in order to get the upper hand. For Alinsky, this means the means don't matter. Destroy whoever or whatever gets in your way. 
Olinsky made it clear that what his followers want is power. Now, Olinsky died before Obama could make it into his classroom. An Investor Business Daily editorial traces Obama's affairs with Olinsky's radical ideology. Obama's first learned Alinsky rules in the 1980s, when Alinsky's radicals with the Chicago-based group Gamamil Foundation recruited, hired, and trained and paid Obama as a community organizer in South Chicago. Well, in 1988, Obama even wrote a chapter for the book after Alinsky, Community Organizing in Illinois. He traveled to L.A. for eight days of intense training at Alinsky's Industrial Areas Foundation. In turn, he trained other community organizers in Alinsky's agitation tactics. He also taught Alinsky's power analysis, methods of the University of Chicago. Ed Bloomfield wrote in The New American, one of Obama's advisors during the 2008 election campaign was Peter Dreyer, Stanley Kurtz, and Radical-in-Chief credits Dreyer with formulating the stealth plan to destroy capitalism. The plan is to gradually expand government spending until the country nears fiscal collapse. At that point, a public who's accustomed to the entitlements will presumably turn on its capitalist masters when they propose cutbacks to restore fiscal balance. The one Alinsky constant learned by Obama is deception. It attempts a full-blown cover-up from Benghazi Gate to fake unemployment stats to deflecting his own deceit by accusing its opponents of lying, a trait that the radical Democrats and their leaders have mastered exceedingly well. While professing to care for the middle class, Obama's answers to lift the middle class out of the current slide into the poverty is to deluge Americans with hidden taxes that are attached to Obamacare. His goal originally was to send gasoline and fuel costs out of the roof, printing dollars that create inflation, cost on food, clothing, American households. Joe Biden is right, in the last four years of Obama have buried the middle class, along with women as head of households, are just some of the casualties. Obama has left 5.5 million women unemployed, putting the poverty rate at 16.3%, the highest in 17 years. This socialist power play, black Americans are collateral damage. According to the Chicago Tribune, failed economic policies have left to the wiping out of gains made by the last 30 years by blacks. With plummets in wealth and high rates of foreclosure, Socialism spares no race. No one is exempt from this hardship. Tony Atkins of Conservative Daily reports, The Warren Act is a federal law requiring that most employers give 60 calendar day notice before they institute a plant closing or mass layoffs. The point is to give workers time to adapt their income to unemployment by looking for another job. Gives them time to adjust their finances. It's the right thing to do, and it's the law. But pesky laws had bad timing consequences for the sitting president. Funding cuts signed by President Barack Obama are going to result in 2 million jobs being lost. Well, Obama learned his lesson well. David Alinsky, Saul Alinsky's son, reportedly said this. I am proud to see that my father's model for organizing is being applied successfully beyond local community organizing. 
Alinsky taught that the key to destroying the middle class is to create a failed economy that destroys private sector jobs, but growing subset of laid-off workers who become reliant on and controlled by the government. It's Alinsky's dream come true at the destructive hands of Barack Obama. And why is it so important to say that it's a subset of laid-off workers who become reliant and controlled by the government? That's because whoever provides the income is the head of the household. So if these people are on some sort of entitlement, food stamps, welfare, uh, chronic unemployment, then their income is provided by the government that makes the government the head of the household. They dictate to them who, what, where, when, and how they'll live. So how is it that we can say that the president is racist? He's been racist from the very beginning. In a 2007 speech to the National Council of La Raza, President Candidate Obama was a featured speaker in the annual convention of the National Council of La Raza, which lobbies for racial preferences, mass immigration, amnesty for all illegals. And here are some of the remarks that came from that. Mr. Obama said, and I quote, I will never walk away from the 12 million undocumented immigrants who live, work, and contribute to our country every single day. We are a nation of immigrants. That's the America we believe in. But that's the American the president and too many Republicans walked away from when policies got tough. We saw parts of the immigration debate that took a turn for both ugly and racist in a way that hasn't been seen since the struggle for civil rights. We don't expect our government to guarantee success and happiness, but when millions of children start the race off of life far behind only because of their race, only because of class, that's a betrayal of our ideas. This is not just a Latino or an African-American problem. This is an American problem that we must solve. And in another speech in 2008 to the National Council of La Raza, he said again, I honor you, I congratulate you, I thank you, and I wish you another 40 years as extraordinary as your last. He said the system isn't working when Hispanics are losing their jobs faster than almost anyone else, or working jobs that pay less and come with fewer benefits than almost anyone else. The system isn't working. When 12 million people living in hiding and hundreds of thousands cross our border illegally each year, when companies hire undocumented immigrants instead of legal citizens to avoid paying overtime or to avoid a union, when communities are terrorized by ICE immigration raids, when nursing mothers are torn from their babies, when children come home from school to find their parents missing, when people are detained without access to legal counsel, we'll make this system work again for everyone by living up to the idea that the organization has always embodied the idea reflected in your name, Raza, the people. Literally, a translation is the race. He says, and together we won't just win an election, we'll transform this nation. Well, Mr. Obama is doing just exactly that. When he first came into office, he accused the Bush administration of racism and radical insensitivity. You know, back in 2005, just to show the history of his racism, Senator Obama spoke at a town hall meeting in the Congressional Black Caucus. Normally devoted to the subject of eradicating poverty, 
This meeting was complete with condemnations of George W. Bush, the Republican Party, and America's purportedly racial iniquities. Well, Obama stopped short of suggesting that the allegedly slow federal response to the victims of Hurricane Katrina, which had devastated New Orleans and the Gulf Coast earlier that month, especially black victims, he said was motivated by racism. But he nonetheless claimed that racism was the cause of what he perceived to be the Bush administration's lack of sensitivity to the struggles of African Americans generally. He said the incompetence was colorblind. What wasn't colorblind was the difference. He said human efforts will allow pale in comparison to nature's forces, but the Bush administration is a set of folks who simply don't recognize what's happening in the large part of our community. He said blacks in hurricane-hit areas were poor. Obama further charged that because of the Bush administration's decision to give tax breaks to Paris Hilton instead of providing child care and education. So this brings up the uh, question, is it the federal government's job to provide child care and education? Well, I'm going to play you a clip here by Robert Welch of the John Birch Society. And this was from 1958. Now you listen to this clip and tell me if this is not what's going on right now. A part of that plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty piece by piece and step by step to various international organizations of which the United Nations is the outstanding but far from the only example. Now here are the aims for the United States. One, greatly expanded government spending for every conceivable means of getting rid of ever larger sums of American money as wastefully as possible. Two, higher and then much higher taxes. Three, an increasingly unbalanced budget, despite the higher taxes. Four, wild inflation of our currency. Five, government controls of prices, wages, and materials, supposedly to combat inflation. Six, greatly increased socialistic controls over every operation of our economy, and every activity of our daily lives. This is to be accompanied naturally and automatically by a correspondingly huge increase in the size of our bureaucracy and in both the cost and reach of our domestic government. Seven, far more centralization of power in Washington and the practical elimination of our state lines. There is a many-faceted drive at work to have our state lines eventually mean no more within the nation than our county lines do now within the states. Eight, the steady advance of federal aid to and control over our educational system, leading to complete federalization of our public education. Nine, a constant hammering into the American consciousness of the horror of modern warfare the beauties and the absolute necessity of peace. Peace always on communist terms, of course. And ten, the consequent willingness of the American people to allow the steps of appeasement by our government, which amount to a piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world and of the United States itself. Now I want you to pay special attention to the education part of this. 
Let me play just this little bit of this clip again. The steady advance of federal aid to and control over our educational system, leading to complete federalization of our public education. And in light of that, here's a story that's being reported today by WND. The largest school district in Virginia is expanding its non-discrimination policy to include gender identity over the loud objections of parents. The Obama administration intends to impose the change on every public school district in the country. On Thursday, the Fairfax County School Board voted overwhelmingly to expand its non-discrimination policy to accommodate transgender teachers and students. The vote came after the second of two boisterous hearings at which parents overwhelmingly opposed the change. Elizabeth Schultz was the only board member to oppose the policy change. She says Corfax is right about the federal intrusion. They threatened that if we don't change our policy, they'll pull our federal funding education funds. That's free and reduced meal money for impoverished students. President Obama and his Justice Department and his Department of Education are going to start telling school districts what they can and can't do. And they told this one, if you do not add gender identity, we're going to take away all of your federal funding. And it just so happens, government controlling education is just part of the plan. In 2006, Obama endorsed Dorothy Tillman, a proponent of reparations and an admirer of Louis Farrakhan. Tillman was a leading proponent of reparations for slavery, claiming that Americans remain one of the cruelest nations in the world when it comes to black folks. Tillman continues to declare that the U.S. owes blacks a debt. Yet the government, Obama, Michelle Obama, are bent on providing funds to Planned Parenthood. Why does that matter? Because they disproportionately abort more black babies than any other race. Now, it's illegal to fund abortions with taxpayer money, but we do. Planned Parenthood goes before Congress, says none of these funds go for abortions, and that's true. They take that money, they pay the bills with it. The rent, the mortgage, the salaries, advertising, promotions, public relations, your tax dollars go to promote and sustain a public image of Planned Parenthood, which is one of the oldest and most racist organizations in America today, and Obama is 100% behind it. And I'm going to tell you about Planned Parenthood. But first, let me take this short break, and we'll let the war pigs describe what's coming up with Planned Parenthood. I'll be right back. You're listening to End Time News. GoDaddy offers everything you need to make a name for yourself on the web, from domain names and website builders to complete e-commerce solutions. We've earned our place as the world's number one accredited domain registrar by delivering world-class products at competitive prices and support them with industry-best services delivered 24-7, 365. We're proud to serve our customers from locations around the world. Sign up now at WDZook.com and get your domain name as low as $5.99 a year. Sign up now at WDeanShook.com. Go, Daddy. Go, Daddy.
Hi folks, have you noticed the federal government and police departments are using drones for everything? Drones are expensive, they're hard to fly. It can take up to a week just to learn to make a drone hover. Not anymore. There's a new generation of drones that are not only affordable, but very easy to fly. Now you can have your own personal drone, anything from a micro mini that'll fit in the palm of your hand, right up to a full scale model, 10 inches in diameter like the model I have, the V949 Pro comes with a six-axis, four-rotor blade and an HD 2.4 camera mounted on the bottom. These drones are made of a space-age polymer. They're durable. And don't worry about crashing your drone. Replacement blades for this drone from the website are only $1.80 for a pack of four. That's right, I said $1.80 for a pack of four replacement blades. You can also get an extra-long life battery. This battery allows you up to a half hour of flight time with a maximum speed of 40 miles an hour. Have your own personal drone and you can get all of this for under $70. If you go to the website wdeanshook.com and click on the banner on the webpage, you can get from 7 to 22% off your personal drone. It's shipped as a kit. You can be up and flying your own personal drone with an HD camera within a half hour. Come to the webpage wdeanshook.com. Click on that banner and get your discount today. WDeanShook.com So how can I say that Planned Parenthood disproportionately aborts more blacks than anybody else? Well, not only do the numbers prove it out, but also, where are they? Where are the Planned Parenthood clinics? They're in the minority neighborhoods. They're not in the upper class neighborhoods. They're not in the middle-class neighborhoods. There are a few in the poor middle-class neighborhoods. Most of them, the biggest, the most productive Planned Parenthoods are in minority neighborhoods. Here's how it started, and here's how it goes right through today, and I'm going to show you that. I'm Michael Hitchborn, and this is the American Life League Report. The federal government already funnels hundreds of millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood every year, so it should come as no surprise when it funnels your money to celebrate its founder. The Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery recently opened a new federally funded exhibit that according to the museum's curator celebrates women who have challenged and changed America over the past century. Included in the list is notorious liberal feminist Margaret Sanger. The National Portrait Gallery website provides a brief description of Sanger describing a concerned crusader who fought with the courage of a wounded tiger for the promotion of birth control. What the Smithsonian exhibit fails to mention, however, is that Margaret Sanger founded the largest abortion chain in the country, now known as Planned Parenthood. But the exhibit also fails to explain the racist ideology behind Sanger's promotion of birth control. Many people don't really know what eugenics is. Eugenics is defined as belief in the possibility of improving the qualities of the human species by discouraging reproduction by persons having genetic defects are presumed to have inheritable, undesirable traits. Essentially, eugenics is the creation of a master race by controlling who has children and who doesn't. An article appearing in the January 31, 1922 edition of the New York Times bore the headline, Mrs. Sanger says Superman is the aim of birth control. If creating a race of supermen is the goal, who did Sanger believe had genetic defects or undesirable traits that stood in the way? In his book, Birth Control, Facts, and Responsibilities, Adolf Meyer quoted an essay Sanger wrote in 1925, entitled, The Need of Birth Control in America. Birth Control, 
is not merely an individual problem. It is not merely a national question. It concerns the whole wide world, the ultimate destiny of the human race. In his last book, Mr. H.G. Wells speaks of the meaningless, aimless lives which cram this world of ours. Hordes of people who are born, who live, yet who have done absolutely nothing to advance the race one iota. Their lives are hopeless repetitions. All that they have said has been said before. All that they have done has been done better before. Such human weeds clog up the past, drain up the energies and the resources of this little earth. We must clear the way for a better world. We must cultivate our garden. In 1922, Sanger wrote a book entitled The Pivot of Civilization. In it is a chapter called The Cruelty of Charity, where she blasts programs that provide medical and nursing facilities to slum mothers as insidiously injurious. In the same book, Sanger called for the cessation of charity, for the segregation of morons, misfits, and the maladjusted, and for the sterilization of genetically inferior races. She also argued that organized attempts to help the poor was the surest sign that our civilization has bred, is breeding, and is perpetuating defectives, delinquents, and dependents. The Birth Control Review was Sanger's official publication for the American Birth Control League, and in 1932 she outlined her plan for peace. The main objectives of the Population Congress would be to apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is already tainted to give certain dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization and to apportion farmlands and homesteads for these segregated persons where they would be taught to work under competent instructors for the period of their entire lives. Sanger's admiration for the eugenics programs of Nazi Germany were well known at the time. In 1933, the Birth Control Review published Eugenic Sterilization, an Urgent Need, by Ernst Rudin, who was Hitler's director of genetic sterilization and the founder of the Nazi Society for Racial Hygiene. In her praise for the eugenics programs in Germany, Sanger called for the implementation of such programs in the United States, specifically targeting African Americans. The following editorial was published in the 1932 issue of the Birth Control Review. The Negro problem is one of the most complicated and important confronting America. Whatever the ultimate answer may be, such an attitude brings to light the function of birth control as a necessary agency in its solution. The present submerged condition of the Negro is due in large part to the high fertility of the race under disastrously adverse circumstances. Thus, the question arises to what extent birth control has had a eugenic effect upon the Negro race. If any question should remain about Sanger's racist agenda, a 1939 letter she wrote to Dr. Clarence Gamble should remove all doubt. 
we should hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. We don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Can there be any wonder why Planned Parenthood opens its facilities in poor inner city neighborhoods populated by minorities? Can there be any doubt that Sanger's philosophy of creating a pure race is what fuels Planned Parenthood's support of embryonic stem cell research? Margaret Sanger was a racist. She's responsible for the millions of babies that have been ethnically cleansed from our country and should not be celebrated by the taxpayer-funded Smithsonian. Please visit the website and contact the Smithsonian demanding that materials on Sanger be removed from the exhibit. For American Life League, I'm Michael Hitchborn. It started with the Harlem Clinic in 1929, 10 years before Margaret Sanger, creator of Planned Parenthood, created what she called the Negro Project. In 1939, Margaret Sanger, co-founder of Planned Parenthood, started the Negro Project with the aim of slowing and then reversing the growth of the black population. A staunch advocate of eugenics, the so-called science of purifying the human gene pool, Sanger viewed certain races, especially blacks, as genetically inferior and inclined towards producing human weeds. Reckless breeders spawning human beings who never should have been born. Sanger's strategy, still followed by Planned Parenthood today, involved recruiting so-called progressive black leaders who were persuaded that slowing back birth rates was a key to their people's future success and prosperity. A profoundly disproportionate number of abortion clinics were placed near the inner cities. And since then, an equally disproportionate number of our African American population, more than 15 million, has been weeded out by abortion. On this fundamental issue, I will not yield and Planned Parenthood will not yield. Because we know that what's at stake is more than whether or not a woman can choose an abortion, choices about how we lead our lives. As the most pro-abortion candidate in American history, Barack Obama will make sure this weeding continues. Say no to abortion. Say no to black genocide in the Negro Project. Say no to Barack Obama. The ABCL laid the groundwork for a clinic in Harlem. It was a largely black section of New York City. It was the dawn of the Great Depression. For blacks, that meant double the misery. Blacks faced harsher conditions of desperation because of widespread racial prejudice and discrimination. From ABCL's perspective, Harlem was the ideal place to start this experimental clinic, which officially opened November 21, 1930. Many blacks looked to escape their adverse circumstances and therefore did not recognize the eugenics undercurrent of this clinic. The clinic relied on the generosity of private foundations to remain in business. It was said to cater to what they called inferior 
and disproportionately represented underclass, according to the clinic's own files used to justify its work. Now, although the clinic did serve whites as well as blacks, it was established for the benefit of the colored people. Sanger wrote this in a letter to Dr. W.E. Du Bois, one of the day's most influential blacks, a sociologist and author. He helped found the National Association for Achievement of Colored People, the NAACP, in 1909 to improve the living conditions of black Americans. The blacks endured extreme prejudice and discrimination, which contributed greatly to their plight, they said. It seemed to further justify restricting their numbers. Many believe the solution lay in reducing reproduction. Sanger, Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, suggested the answer to poverty and degradation lay in small numbers of blacks. She convinced black civil groups in Harlem of the quote-unquote, benefits of birth control under the cloak of better health, the same that they do today. This was the reduction of maternal and infant death, or child spacing. They called it family planning. Sound familiar? It's the same terms used today with the same meetings. So with their cooperation and the endorsement of the Amsterdam News, a prominent black newspaper, Sanger established the Harlem branch of the Birth Control Clinic Research Bureau, the ABCL, and they told the community birth control was the answer to their predicament. Sanger shrewdly used the influence of prominent blacks to reach the masses with this message. So let's take this by the numbers. According to the CDC, black women are 3.7 times more likely to have an abortion than non-Hispanic or white women. Abortion, by the numbers, is a racist institution. That's not to say that all or even most of anyone who supports abortion is racist, nor does it apply that there are racists who are among those who oppose abortion. This statement has nothing to do with the agendas or the intent. It has everything to do with the simple, undeniable reality that in the United States, abortion kills minority children at more than three times the rate of non-Hispanic or white children. This is a black genocide. Now, the CDC says African Americans make up about 13% of the U.S. population. It also reports that black women account for 35% of all abortions. The Gutmuncher Institute puts the percentage of black abortions at about 30% of the total U.S. abortions. The AGI tells us that Hispanic women account for 25% of all abortions, and Hispanics make up 16% of the U.S. population. The CDC lists the average of Hispanic abortions at 20%. Compare those numbers to non-Hispanic whites who make up to 77% of America's population but account for only 36% of all abortions. So let's break this down in numbers that we can easily understand. The white population in America is about 197 million and they get about 1,100 abortions a day at 197 million whites. The black population is about 45 million, and they get 1,200 abortions a day. 
the Hispanic population, if it's about 16, 17%, they get 800 a day. Not only are black children being killed at a far greater rate percentage than white children, it's possibly they're being killed in greater numbers, period. Isn't that shocking? Well, I thought the white population in the U.S. outnumbers black population 5 to 1. Abortions may well be killing more black children each day than white children. In the abortion industry, Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in the U.S. and their racist roots go back to their very beginning. Africans, Americans are their target. So think about these numbers this way. 197 million whites, 1,100 abortions a day. That's like having a full glass of water and taking 1% off the top. Doesn't make any real big deal. Think about this. African-American population, between 13, 16, 17, we'll say 13%. They have 1,200 abortions a day. You're taking a half a glass of water out of that. Hispanic population, 54 million, 800 abortions a day. You can see how unproportionate this is for African-Americans. If you're a black family in America and you support Barack Obama, you think he's solving the racist problems in America? You think he's supporting America's black population? Here's the truth. Thank you. All right, everybody have a seat. Have a seat. You're making me blush. Well, I love you back. Thank you. Cecile, thank you for the warm introduction, uh, and thank you for the outstanding leadership that you've shown over the years. You just do a great, great job. Um, I want to thank all of you for the remarkable work that you're doing day in, day out in providing quality health care to women all across America. Uh, You are somebody that women... Young women, old women, women in between, count on uh, for so many uh, important services. And uh, we are truly grateful to you. Uh, I'm sorry that I could not be at the party yesterday. Uh, I understand it was a little wild. (laughs) That's what I heard. Uh, But as all of you know, obviously, we've gone through a a pretty tough uh, week and a half. And I was down in Texas. Letting, know, uh, letting the people of West Texas know that uh, we all love them and care about them uh, in their time of, of grieving. Uh, but, uh, obviously, this is a special national conference because uh, it, it's been nearly a hundred years since the first health clinic of what later would become Planned Parenthood opened its doors to women in Brooklyn. And for nearly a century now, one core principle has guided everything all of you do. That women should be allowed to make their own decisions about their own health. It's a simple principle. So when I see in this audience extraordinary doctors and nurses and advocates and staff who work tirelessly to keep the doors uh, at health centers all across the country going, uh, then I'm reminded of those very early efforts uh, and all the strides that we've made in subsequent decades. And I also think about the millions of mothers and daughters and wives and sisters, friends and neighbors, who walk through those doors every year, 
Now, somewhere there's a woman who just received a new lease on life because of a screening that you provided that helped catch her cancer in time. Somewhere there's a woman who's breathing easier today because of the support and counseling she got at her local Planned Parenthood health clinic. Somewhere there's a young woman starting a career who, because of you, is able to decide for herself when she wants to start a family. One in five women in this country has turned to Planned Parenthood for health care. One in five. And for many, Planned Parenthood is their primary source of health care. Not just for contraceptive care, but for life-saving preventive care, like cancer screenings and health counseling. So when politicians try to turn Planned Parenthood into a punching bag, they're not just talking about you, they're talking about the millions of women who you, uh, who you serve. And when they talk about cutting off your funding, let's be clear, they're talking about telling many of those women, you're on your own. They're talking about shutting those women out at a time when they may need it most. Shutting off communities that need more health care options for women, not less. So the fact is, after decades of progress, there's still those who want to turn back the clock to policies more suited to the 1950s than the 21st century. And they've been involved in an orchestrated and historic effort to roll back basic rights when it comes to women's health. Forty-two states have introduced laws that would ban or severely limit access to a woman's right to choose. Laws that would make it harder for women to get the contraceptive care that they need. Laws that would cut off access to cancer screenings and end educational programs that help prevent teen pregnancy. In North Dakota, they just passed a law that outlaws, uh, outlaws your right to choose starting as early as six weeks, even if a woman's raped. A woman may not even know that she's pregnant at six weeks. In Mississippi, a ballot initiative was put forward that could not only have outlawed your, uh, outlawed your right to choose, but could have had all sorts of other far-reaching consequences like cutting off fertility treatments, making certain forms of contraception a crime. That's absurd. It's wrong. It's an assault on women's rights, and that's why when the people of Mississippi were given a chance to vote on that initiative, they turned it down. And Mississippi is a conservative state. Mississippi is a conservative state, but they wanted to make clear there's nothing conservative about the government injecting itself into decisions best made between a woman and her doctor. And folks are trying to do this all across the country. When you read about some of these laws, you want to check the calendar. You want to make sure you're still living in 2013. <laughs> Forty years after the Supreme Court affirmed a woman's constitutional right to privacy, including the right to choose, we shouldn't have to remind people that when it comes to a woman's health, no politician 
should get to decide what's best for you. No insurer should get to decide what kind of care that you get. The only person who should get to make decisions about your health is you. That's why we fought so hard to make health care reform a reality. That principle is at the heart of the Affordable Care Act. Because of the ACA, most insurance plans are now covering the cost of contraceptive care so that a working mom doesn't have to put off the care she needs just so, so she can pay her bills on time. Because of the Affordable Care Act, 47 million women have new access to preventive care like mammograms and cancer screenings with no copay, no deductible, no out-of-pocket costs, so they don't have to put off a mammogram just because money's tight. Because of the Affordable Care Act, young people under the age of 26 can now stay on their parents' health care plan. And insurance companies soon will no longer be able to deny you coverage based on pre-existing conditions like breast cancer or charge you more just because you are a woman. Those days are ending. Those days are ending. Now, I know how hard you worked to help us pass health care reform. You and your supporters got out there, you organized, you mobilized, you made your voices heard. You made all the difference. But here's the thing. If Americans don't know how to access the new benefits and protections that they're going to receive as we implement this law, then health care reform won't make much of a difference in their lives. So I'm here to also ask for your help, because we need to get the word out. We need you to tell your patients, your friends, your neighbors, your family members, what the health care law means for them. Make sure they know that if they don't have health insurance, they'll be able to sign up for quality, affordable health insurance starting this fall in an online marketplace where private insurers will compete for their business. Make sure that they know that there are plans out there right now that cover the costs of contraception and preventive care free of charge. We've got to spread the word, particularly among women, particularly among young women, who are the ones who are most likely to benefit from these laws. We need all the women who come through your doors telling their children, their husbands, and their folks in their neighborhoods about their health care options. We need all college students who come through your doors to call up their friends and post on Facebook talking about the protections and benefits that are kicking in. And, and you are all in a unique position to deliver that message because the women you serve know you and they trust you. And the reason for that is that you haven't let them down before. I know it's not always easy. Now, Cecile describes Planned Parenthood as the only organization that she's ever been at where there are opponents who, in her words, literally get up every day trying to figure out how to keep us from doing our work. Now, if she had worked in the administration, she'd, um, she'd be more familiar with this phenomenon. But. But 
when it comes to your patience, you never let them down. No matter what. And that's because you never forget who this is all about. This is about a woman from Chicago named Courtney who has a disease that can leave women infertile. So in college, she turned to Planned Parenthood for access to affordable contraceptive care to keep her healthy. You didn't just help her plan for a family, you made sure she could start one. And today she's got two beautiful kids. That's what Planned Parenthood is about. There's about a woman in Washington State named Joyce who for years could only afford health care at her local Planned Parenthood clinic. And heeding your advice, she never missed her annual exam. During one of them, your doctors helped catch an aggressive form of cervical cancer early enough to save her life. Today, she's been cancer-free for 25 years. So every day, in every state, in every center that Planned Parenthood operates, there's stories like those. Lives you've saved, women you've empowered, families that you've strengthened. That's why no matter how great the challenge, no matter how fierce the opposition, there's one thing the past few years have shown. It's that Planned Parenthood is not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere today. It's not going anywhere tomorrow. As long as we've got a fight to make sure women have access to quality, affordable health care, and as long as we've got to fight to protect a woman's right to make her own choices about her own health, I want you to know that you've also got a president who's going to be right there with you, fighting every step of the way. Thank you, Planned Parenthood. God bless you. God bless America. Thank you. That was President Obama wrapping up this speech to the Planned Parenthood gala taking place here in Washington. Americans, blacks especially, have a solution that will work. But this applies to all Americans. We need to get back in our churches. We need to reinstitute the family and family values. We cannot expect others to solve our problems. We have to do it ourselves. Have you ever heard the song Nirvana did called In Bloom? Here's what it says. So in case you didn't understand what he was saying there, he says that he likes to shoot his gun, but he don't know what it means. He don't know what it means. The song's not talking about a literal gun. It's talking about sex. He likes to shoot his gun, but he don't know what it means. Sex today is a recreational sport. Men like to shoot their guns especially young men today, but they don't know what it means. They just want to shoot their gun as much as possible. Shoot it, then move on to shoot it again somewhere else. What they don't know is that there's consequences to that. It gets a woman pregnant, and the guys have moved on to another girl and left this other girl alone and pregnant. In a lot of cases, she's young, she's scared, the only option she sees is abortion. 
because neither the guy or the girl thought about what they're doing. They don't know what it means. After all, according to the young people today, sex is a sport. And in the end, an innocent life is lost through abortion. Babies die. Let's get our people back in the church. Let's reinstitute some good moral values. Teach our kids the truth about the way life works. Maybe if we had some family wage jobs that gave our youth the opportunity to earn a decent wage, to support a family, they would stop committing crimes because they wouldn't be poor anymore. They would have some goals in life. Be able to buy a house and a car to put their kids in a decent school. Let me tell you the truth about other ways that Mr. Obama and his administration is not supporting you. The Obama administration has opened the floodgates for immigration from South America. And it's said by 2045, Latinos will be the largest population in America. Corporations all over this country are hiring cheap labor. They love the illegals because they work very hard for slave wages and they don't complain about it. These immigrants will do any kind of work. They don't much care. Their attitude is just give me a job. They work their butts off. Companies like it because the Obama administration gives employers a waiver on health care benefits. Where if a company hires an illegal, they don't have to provide benefits for them. So why would an employer hire a white man or a black man if they have to pay benefits to them? When they have to pay them a fair wage. And Americans want things like breaks or decent hours or good working conditions. Well, employers are not going to do that when they can hire an illegal and work the piss out of them for next to nothing and not give them any of those benefits. It's all about the money. Now, if Obama and his administration cared anything about whites or blacks, then why is he taking our jobs and giving them to people who are in this country illegally? He's taking away the opportunity for all of us to be productive, working Americans. He's destroying the middle class. He says some good things in his speeches, but then he does the opposite. Well, let me tell you this. Words are cheap. You know, we are told in the Bible that we will know a tree by its fruit. The tree can say it's an apple tree all day long. But if it produces cherries, it's not an apple tree. It's a cherry tree. Obama can talk till he's blue in the face, but his deeds don't match what he says. He's using the divide and conquer strategy. He's trying to blame everyone else for the problems that he has created. I want you to hear an interview from WND Radio. This is with Horace Cooper. Listen to this interview. My guest at this time is Horace Cooper. He is the co-chairman of the Project 21 National Leadership Network of Black Conservatives. He's also an adjunct fellow at the parent organization, the National Center for Public Policy Research. He is also an attorney. And Horace, uh, obviously we want to get your thoughts on the ongoing unrest in, in Ferguson, Missouri, and some of the underlying concerns there. We've obviously heard a lot of analysis from a lot of different areas. From your estimation, uh, what in addition to the obvious controversy over the death of Michael Brown, is it work in some of the unrest we see here and in other expressions around the country? Is it about a general mistrust of the police in the black community? Is it about uh, a potential class warfare, as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has written about in Time Magazine this week? What do you think is all factored in here? 
there is some resentment that exists, but I think we're seeing resentment that is um, being stoked and encouraged, and it's mostly based on the economic standings that people find themselves in. A lot of Americans, black, white, and brown, are not aware uh, that the original Civil Rights March on Washington was primarily motivated by people who were concerned about their economic plight and why, if government put its hand on the thumb, uh, its thumb on the scale, it was making it harder for people to achieve. There's been no doubt that under the present administration's stewardship, it has been harmful for Americans, and black Americans have felt it particularly painfully. Unfortunately, rather than have a conversation about the good intentions behind the policies that have hurt so many, there's been an ongoing effort on the part of agitators like uh, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson to engage in sort of a distraction effort and to say to people who are genuinely unhappy about their situation that it is somehow broader indictment on America that's important. And that's why all that we're watching in Ferguson is so concerning. We're not actually seeing the real story. The shop owners, black, white, and brown, who are being terrorized and who have their property looted, we're not looking and talking about what the state of play in terms of crime was uh, on the lives of people who lived in Ferguson and the lives of people all across America who live in, in many urban areas, the difficulties that they are facing. We are distracted from that by wanting to believe, uh, according to the agitators like Mr. Sharpton or Mr. Malik Shabazz, um, that somehow white America is on some systemic effort to harm black America. Lots of progress has been made in my lifetime, and yet, and most Americans would agree with that black and white, and yet that is being pushed aside to stoke the resentment where people see that they're unhappy, and it's not clear why they're unhappy, but these agitators help give them a reason to do that. Let's follow up on a couple of the points you made, Horace. First of all, you mentioned that the black Americans in particular have suffered as a result of this administration's policies. Uh, briefly explain why that's the case. Sure. When you look at indices, uh, just comparing the Bush administration with the Obama administration, black home ownership is sharply down. Black unemployment is sharply elevated. Uh, black American savings accounts are dramatically lower. There's almost been a 40% loss in total equity value among the typical black family compared to what they had uh, during the eight years of the Bush administration. When you are looking at real-life data points, Will people be able to say, black, white, or brown, are their kids going to have a better circumstance and a better life than they do? When black Americans are answering that question, they're showing a far more disappointed idea about it because of the circumstances that they find themselves in. The financial stewardship by this administration has been destructive. It has been abysmal. It has been the kind of thing that you couldn't you could have said to people, economists and other specialists could have said, we predict this, but you couldn't have imagined that people would have gone forward with these kinds of policies. Black Americans need jobs, opportunity, investment, education 
far more than they need free health care, unemployment extensions, or the other network of social services that this administration is putting forward. They're going to indebt our children. They're going to indebt our society. They make us have fewer opportunities. When people are setting up their shops in places like Ferguson, they are trying to offer services to black, white, and brown, and they find themselves doing that on an uphill push because of the policies of this administration. Rather than acknowledge that, we're hearing talk that the real problem in America today is that black Americans face, black men in particular, face the threat of being gunned down by the law enforcement community. That's untrue. The data doesn't show that. And it, it, it causes us to miss the actual complaint and slight that is really happening in our lives. Then there are some of the long-term issues that folks have brought up. The president brought up several that he thought were factors potentially in his statement on Monday saying, quote, there are young black men that commit crime, and we can argue about why that happens because of the poverty they were born into or the lack of opportunity or the school systems that failed them or what have you. I also talked about potential inequities in the criminal justice system. When you, whether you go back to the 60s or what have you, other folks obviously have talked about uh, policies that perhaps in, encourage or incentivize out-of-wedlock births, uh, absentee fatherhood, and that sort of thing also playing a factor. Based on your expertise, what do you think are some of the more long-term factors leading to some of these problems? Well, there's no doubt that uh, the president's policies that say that we're going to reward uh, people uh, for indolence, so you don't have to have a job anymore uh, to get uh, many of the benefits that just under the Clinton administration the whole country came together to acknowledge. We are going to predicate you actually having a job before we give you these kinds of benefits punishing work by saying to people you can get it without having to do it sends the wrong signal and that's been destructive in the black community um we have this whole mindset increasingly that the bigger problem in america is whether two men or two women can get married rather than looking at the long-term policies of a labor um, um, influence on our education, preventing our youngest from having opportunities when they are at their most vulnerable. If you were to say, where are the real problems facing America today, there are far more people who recognize that the educational attainment issue is a greater need than any of the other so-called civil rights that progressives want to talk about. And generally speaking, there has been an aggressive effort to try to create the impression that it's the law enforcement in America that is the problem and not the law breaking that is the problem. In 1950, 1955, and 1960, when you look at the data points, here's what you see. Black Americans are far less likely to be convicted and incarcerated as felons than the broader community. Today, that number is exactly the opposite. We also see that in 1950, 1955, and 1960, that the um, out-of-wedlock birth rate was lower in the black community than it was in the rest of the community. Again, we now see today that number is entirely going in the wrong direction, so that some two-thirds to 70% of all black children are born out of wedlock. You can't continue down that, that pathway. The President of the United States would be far better well-served to say, look at the life that 
Michelle and I have led and the children that we have model what we are doing. Sacrifice. Go to school. Get a good education. And guess what? In this great nation that we live in, you can be president. That's not the message that we hear. What we hear is that America itself is unfair to people of color, and that's harmful and that's destructive. Last question, a slightly different aspect of the story. Obviously, it's been a major media story for the past uh, week and a half going on two weeks now. What do you make of the coverage? The media has not been helpful in all of this. Uh, The media has had a uh, rush to judgment to create the impression that the whole story is all about how America is unfair, how police officers will go out of their way to harm innocent people. Whatever the story ends up being, this is a far more ambiguous case, a far more mixed case than what the media would have us believe. Reporting that this man was executed, um, reporting that this man was factually holding his hands up and was gone down fails to help black, white, and brown America understand what actually occurred and when, as I predict, when all is said and done, this case results in not a murder conviction, a lot of people are going to be really surprised because the media misled them as to what the details and the facts of this case were all about. Horace, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today, as always. Thank you, sir. Horace Cooper is co-chairman of the Project 21 National Leadership Network of Black Conservatives. He's also an adjunct fellow at the parent organization, the National Center for Public Policy Research. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America reporting for WND.com. And you know this divide and conquer is not just by race. It's with gay rights, the LGBT movement, where the government, the courts, the mainstream media play on the rights of both sides, pushing one against the other one the war on women, the government claiming that there's a concentrated war against women. They're dividing us into little tiny groups so they can conquer us individually, bring down the middle class. You know, I heard Obama say before the midterm elections that he doesn't understand why Democrats are not running on his great record. Do you think Obama has a great record? He does. He believes that he's going to be a historic figure because of what he's doing to fundamentally change America into a socialist country. Well, if you don't think this divide-and-conquer strategy is real, I want you to listen to Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, who explains Obama's divide-and-conquer strategy. And this is a black sheriff. Listen to this clip. The issues of race, politics, and criminal justice as we track the ongoing fallout after the Ferguson and New York grand jury decisions. Today, a number of congressional staffers walked out of work to show solidarity with the people protesting those decisions. They joined together on the steps of the House, raising their hands, as you see here in the hands up, don't shoot gesture made popular by those in Ferguson, Missouri. All this is tonight. Fox News releases a new poll showing that 62% of voters believe that race relations have gotten worse since Barack Obama became president. Joining me now, David Clark, the sheriff of Milwaukee County. Sheriff, good to see you again tonight. And so 62% of Americans uh, believe that. And when you break it down, white and, and black, uh, how race relations done, 
65% of whites believe that, 55% of African Americans believe that race relations have gotten worse. Are they right? Of course they're right. Look, uh, he built that, you know, and he being the President of the United States, remember that statement, uh, you didn't build that? Well, he built this. Uh, this racial divide. It was a wound that had been healing for a number of years, a number of decades, I should say, and he, he reopened it with his divisive politics. Look, President Obama has benefited from the divide-and-conquer strategy, uh, and it's secured uh, two successive electoral victories for the White House, but it's been very destructive for America. Who would have thought that after the election of the first black president in the history of the United States that we would need a period of reconstruction to try to put this country back together. What specifically do you feel he's done or not done? Well, he's taken sides in this issue. He's fanned those flames. Uh, and and it, it started back at the, the uh, Gates situation. Remember when he talked about how the police acted stupidly mm -hmm. and that uh, insinuated that the police were engaged in some sort of uh, racial profiling and investigating that. Is and like I said, instead of... Sorry, go, go ahead. Sir. Instead of, of, of taking a more neutral tone and trying to get people to, you know, stay calm about this matter, this matter, he fanned those flames. This was a chance for Barack Obama to have a Gettysburg Address moment where he could have asked the country to come back together and heal, and instead all we get out of him is being present. Do you think it's the president himself, or do you think it's those with whom he surrounds himself, people like Eric Holder and so on? Well, it's all of them. It's a cabal of people. But, you know, he's at the top. And when the president speaks, people listen. Uh, he has to choose, choose his words carefully. And he didn't do that when he uh, made the police all across America a whipping post and, and painted them as, as bloodthirsty well, and engaging in racial profiling. Well, he always stops in these remarks and, says he, and acknowledges the sacrifice made by police officers and the, and the fact that they have the right to return home alive. Well, you know, he said the other day, though, that... Uh, uh, he, bet, he blamed bad training, and he also said that uh, this fear of people who don't look like them, you know, when he was referring to the police, I thought that was disgusting. So while he may throw a, a few things in there, a few bones, if you will, you know, to try to smooth things out, uh, people know what he's doing. I said a couple weeks ago, you know, he does this stuff with a wink and a nod. What do you make of the fact that we, we now have, you know, congressional staffers walking out, we've had basketball players walking out, we've had football players walking out with the hands up, don't shoot. Now, that's, that, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that's been disproven in Ferguson, but at a minimum there's been very strong testimony that that is not at all what happened, including by African-American witnesses to say that's not what happened. In the meantime, we just did a story about two big-shot Hollywood producers who were attending a big fundraiser for our first African-American president. And behind the scenes, before they get there, they're talking about what movies would he like. Oh, it's all black movies. That, that's not, people aren't standing up and yelling about that kind of, what appears to be actual racism, or at least racist comments. I won't accuse them of being racist, but the comments, versus a situation that is very ambiguous. Your thoughts on it? Well, tasteless. And of course, you know, people on the left get away with it, but that's who they really are. They were exposed for who they are. You know, look, if we're going to have this bigger uh, discussion about race, and Eric Holder had said we're cowards when it comes to talking about race, well, I'm not, and I'm ready to engage him in that conversation. We have to begin to ask when white society is going to be through paying for the sins of slavery. We're now punishing people uh, for sins that they didn't commit. At some point, and I've done this with myself, you know, I've, I've forgiven, and I've moved on. I've stamped that bill 
marked for the wrongs of slavery paid in full. This country is now open for opportunities for all people. In instances of discrimination and racism had to go underground. Okay, it's been uprooted. The President of the United States uh, said a couple days ago that uh, they were deep-rooted, and that's simply not true. So we have to have that discussion as to when we're going to really ready, uh, be ready to move on and forgive people, especially people today who have no connection to what uh, is being talked about anyway. Mm. Sheriff Clark, it's always interesting to get your perspective. Thanks for being here, sir. Thank you, Megan. There's a division going on, not just between blacks and other races, not just between Latinos and other races, not just between whites and other races, but it's also against the police departments, law enforcement, and the government. All of these are divides that are part of the divide and conquer. If they can divide us into small groups and then destroy each group individually, they can conquer us. And they've already done it in our education system. They're already doing it by making themselves the head of the household. My friends, you need to pay attention to what's going on here. Now, remember that a country can only be disgraced when the people refuse to stand up in the face of tyranny. We talk about this till we're blue in the face, but nobody's doing anything about it. Nobody's doing anything about it. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it so very much. Don't forget you can download the mobile app for your iPhone or your Android at Google Play or the App Store. Or you can come to the link at the website at wdeanshook.com. And as usual, when the dust settles and the smoke clears, I'll be back with more truth in the news. Thank you.